Chapter Thirteen of A Silent Witness by R. Austin Freeman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. Chapter Thirteen: A Mysterious Stranger. On the following morning, I betook myself to the hospital, intending to call later in the day at Doctor Thorndyke's chambers, but that visit turned out to be unnecessary for as i ran my eye over the names on the attendance board in the entrance hall i saw that thorndyke was in the building although it was not the day on which he lectured i found him as i had expected in the museum and was greeted with a hearty grip of the hand and a welcome the warmth of which gratified me exceedingly well jardine he said you've given us all a pretty fine shake-up i've never been more relieved in my life than I was when my man Poulton gave me your note. But you seem to have had another fairly close shave. What a fellow you are, to be sure. You seem to be as tenacious of life as the proverbial cat. So that little archbishop is your man Poulton, is he? Yes, and a most remarkable man, Jardine, and simply invaluable to me, though he ought to be in a very different position. But I think he is quite happy with me, especially now that he has got your watch to experiment on. You will see that watch again some day, when he has rated it to half a second. And meanwhile, let us go into the curator's room and reconstitute your adventures. The curator's room was empty at the moment. Empty, that is to say, so far as human denizens were concerned. Otherwise it was decidedly full. The usual wilderness of glass jars, sepulchral slate tanks, bones in all stages of preparation, and unfinished specimens being supplemented by that all-pervading, unforgettable odour peculiar to curators' rooms, compounded of alcohol and mortality, and suggesting a necropolis for deceased dipsomaniacs. Thorndyke seated himself on a well-polished stool by the workbench, and, motioning me to another, bade me speak on, which I did in exhaustive detail, giving him a minute history of my experiences from the time of my parting from Sylvia to the present moment, not omitting my encounter with Mrs. Samway and the clerical gentleman in the train. He listened to my narrative in his usual silent, attentive fashion, making no comments and asking no questions until I had finished, when he cross-examined me on one or two points of detail. "'With regard to Mrs. Samway,' he asked, "'did you gather that she was crossing by the Boulogne boat?' "'I inferred that she was, but she said nothing on the subject.' He nodded, and then asked, "'Do I understand that you never saw your assailant at all?' "'I never got the slightest glimpse of him. In fact, I could not say whether the person who attacked me was a man or a woman.' excepting that the obvious strength and the method of attack suggest a man. To this he made no reply, but sat a while absorbed in thought. It was evident that he was deeply interested in the affair, not only on my account, but by reason of the curious problems that it offered for solution. Indeed, his next remark was to this effect. "'It is a most singular case, Jardine,' he said. "'So much of it is perfectly clear.' and yet so much more is unfathomable mystery. But just now the speculative interest is overshadowed by the personal. 
I'm rather doubtful as to what we ought to do. It almost looks as if you ought not to be at large. I hope, sir, you don't suggest shutting me up, I exclaimed with a grin. That was in my mind, he answered. You are evidently in considerable danger, and you are not as cautious as you ought to be. I shall be mighty cautious after this experience, I rejoined, and you have yourself implied that I have nine lives. Even so, he retorted, you have played away a third of them pretty rapidly. If you are not more careful of the other six, I shall have to put you somewhere out of harm's way. Do, for goodness sake, Jardine, keep away from unpopulated places, and see that no stranger gets near enough to have you at a disadvantage. I promised him to keep a constant watch for suspicious strangers, and to avoid all solitary neighbourhoods and ill-lighted thoroughfares, and shortly after this we separated to go our respective ways, he back to the museum and I to the surgical wards. For some time after this, the record of my daily life furnishes nothing but a chronicle of small beer. I had resumed pretty regular attendance at the hospital, setting forth from my lodgings in the morning and returning thither as the late afternoon merged into evening, taking the necessary exercise in the form of the long walk to and from the hospital, and keeping close indoors at night. It began to look as though my adventures were at an end, and life were settling down to the old familiar jog-trot. And yet the beer was not quite so small as it looked. Coming events cast their shadows before them, but often enough those shadows wear a shape ill-defined and vague, and so creep on unnoticed. Thus it was in these days of apparent inaction, though even then there were certain little happenings at which I looked askance. Such an episode occurred within a few days of my return, and gave me considerable food for thought. I had climbed on to the yellow bus in the Tottenham Court Road, and was seated on the top, smoking my pipe, when, as we passed up the Hampstead Road, I noticed a woman looking into the window of Mr. Robinson, the artist's colourman. Something familiar or distinctive in the pose of the figure made me glance a second time. And then I think my eyes must have grown more and more round with astonishment as the bus gradually drew me out of range, for the woman was undoubtedly Mrs. Samway. It was really a most surprising affair. This good lady seemed to be ubiquitous to fly hither and thither, and drop from the clouds as if she were the possessor of a magic carpet. Apparently she had not gone to Bologna after all, or if she had, her stay on the continent must have been uncommonly short. But if she had not crossed on the boat, what was she doing in Folkestone? It was all very well to say that she had as much right to be in Folkestone as I had. That was true enough, but it was a lame conclusion, and no explanation at all. It was my custom, as I have said, to walk from my lodgings to the hospital, a distance of some five miles, but this was practicable only in fine weather. On wet days I took the tram from the Duke of St. Albans, and beguiled the slow journey by reading one of my textbooks, and observing the manners and customs of my fellow-passengers. Such a day was the one that followed the reappearance of Mrs. Samway. A persistent drizzle put my morning walk out of the question, and sent me, reluctant but resigned, to seek the shelter of the tram where, having settled myself with a volume of Gold's Surgical Diagnosis, I began to read, to the accompaniment of the monotonous rhythm of the horses' hoofs and the sleepy jingle of their bells. From time to time I looked up from my book to take a glance at the other occupants of the steamy interior, and on each occasion that I did so 
I caught the eye of my opposite neighbour, roving over my person, as if taking an inventory of my apparel. Whenever he caught my eye, he immediately looked away. But the next time I glanced up, I was sure to find him once more engaged in a leisurely examination of me. There was nothing remarkable in this. People who sit opposite in a public vehicle unconsciously regard one another, as I was doing myself. But when I had met my neighbour's eye a dozen times or more, I began to grow annoyed at his persistent inspection, and, finally shutting up my book, proceeded to retaliate in kind. This seemed to embarrass him considerably. Avoiding my steady gaze, his eyes flitted to and fro, passing restlessly from one part of the vehicle to another, and then it was that my medical eye noted a fact that gave an intrinsic interest to the inspection. The man had what is called an nystagmus, that is, a peculiar oscillatory movement of the eyeball. As his eyes passed quickly from object to object, they did not both come to rest instantaneously, but the right eye stopped with a sort of vertical stagger, as if the bearings were loose. The condition is not a very common one, and the one-sided variety is decidedly rare. It is usually associated with some defect of vision or habitual strain of the eye muscles, as in minor's nystagmus, whence my discovery naturally led to a further survey and speculation as to the cause of the condition in the present case. The man was obviously not a minor. His hands, with the cigarette stain, as I noticed, on the left middle finger, were much too delicate, and he had not in any way the appearance of a labourer. Then the spasm must be due to some defect of eyesight. Yet he was not near-sighted, for, as we passed a church at some distance, I saw him glance out through the doorway at the clock and compare it with his watch. And again I noticed that he took out his watch with his left hand. Then perhaps he had a blind eye, or unequal vision in the two eyes. This seemed the most likely explanation, and I had hardly proposed it to myself when the chance was given to me to verify it. Confused by my persistent examination of him, my unwilling patient suddenly produced a newspaper from his pocket, and, clapping a pair of pince-nez on his nose, began to read. Those pince-nez gave me the required information, for I could see that one glass was strongly convex, while the other was nearly plain. The question of my friend's eyesight being disposed of, I began to debate the significance of that stain of the left middle finger. Was he left-handed? It did not follow, though it seemed likely, and then I found myself noting the manner in which he held his paper, until, becoming suddenly conscious of the absurdity of the whole affair, I impatiently picked up my book and reverted to the diagnosis of renal calculus. I was becoming, I reflected disparagingly, as inquisitive as Thorndyke himself, from whom I seemed to have caught some infection that impelled me thus to concern myself with the trifling peculiarities of total strangers. The trivial incident would probably have faded from my recollection, but for another, equally trivial, which occurred a day or two later. I was returning home by way of Tottenham Court Road, and had nearly reached the crossing at the north end, when I suddenly remembered that I had come to the last of my notebooks. The shop at which I obtained them was in Gower Street, hard by, and as the thought of the books occurred to me, I turned abruptly, and, running across the road, strode quickly down a by-street that led to the shop. As I came out into Gower Street, I noticed a small but rapidly augmenting crowd on the pavement, and, elbowing my way through, found at its centre a man lying on the ground, 
writhing in the convulsions of an epileptic fit. I proceeded to ward off the well-meant attentions of the usual excited bystanders who were pulling open his hands and trying to sit him up, and had thrust the corner of a folded newspaper between his teeth to prevent him from biting his tongue when a constable arrived on the scene, upon which, as the officer bore on his sleeve the badge of the St. John's Ambulance Society, I gave him a few directions and began to back out of the crowd. At this moment I became aware of a pressure behind me and a suspicious fumbling, strongly suggestive of the presence of a pickpocket. Instantly I turned right about and directed a searching look at the people behind me, and especially at a bearded, nondescript person who seemed also to be backing out of the crowd. He gave me a single quick glance as I followed him through the press and then averted his eyes, and as he did so I noticed with something of a start that his right eye came to rest with a peculiar, rapid, up-and-down shake. He had, in fact, a right-sided nystagmus. The coincidence naturally struck me with some force. A nystagmus is not, as I have said, a very common condition. One-sided nystagmus is actually a rare one, and, of the one-sided instances, only some fifty percent will affect the right eye. The coincidence was therefore quite a notable one, but had it any particular bearing? I had a half-formed inclination to follow the man, but he had not actually picked my pocket or done any other overt act, and one could hardly follow a person merely because he happened to suffer from an uncommon nervous affection. The man was now walking up the street, briskly, but without manifest hurry, looking straight before him and swinging his stick with something of a flourish. I watched him speculatively, as I walked in the same direction, and then suddenly realized that he was carrying his stick in his left hand, and carrying it, too, with the unmistakable ease born of habit. Then he was left-handed, and here was another coincidence, not a remarkable one in itself, but, when added to the other, so singular and striking, that I insensibly quickened my pace. As my acquaintance reached the corner of the Euston Road, an omnibus stopped to put down a passenger. It was about to move on when he raised his stick, and, following it, stepped on to the footboard and mounted to the roof. I was undecided what to do. Should I follow him? And, if so, to what purpose? He would certainly notice me, if I did, and be on his guard, so that I should probably have my trouble for nothing, and possibly look like a fool into the bargain. And while I was thus standing irresolute at the corner, the omnibus rumbled away westward, and decided the question for me. I am not, as the reader may have gathered, a particularly cautious man, or much given to suspicion. But recent events had made me a good deal more wary, and had taught me to look with less charity on chance fellow-creatures. And this left-handed person with the nystagmus occupied my thoughts to no small extent during the next day or two. Was he the man whom I had seen in the tram? Apparently not. The latter had been clean-shaven and dressed neatly in the style of a clerk or ordinary city man, whereas the former wore a full beard and was shabby, almost beyond the verge of respectability. As to their respective statures, I could not judge, as I had seen the one man seated and the other standing. But, superficially, they were not at all alike, and, in all probability, they were different persons. But this conclusion was not at all inevitable. When I reflected on the matter, I saw that the resemblances and differences did not balance. The two men resembled one another in qualities that were inherent and unalterable, 
but they differed in qualities that were superficial and subject to change. A man cannot assume or cast off an astagmus, but he can put on a false beard. A left-handed man may endeavour to conceal his peculiarity, but the superior deftness of the habitually used hand will make itself apparent in spite of his efforts, whereas he can make any alterations in his clothing that he pleases. And thus reflecting, the suspicion grew more and more strong that the two men might very well have been one and the same person, and that it would be discreet to keep a bright lookout for a left-handed man with a right-sided nystagmus. During all this time I had seen nothing of my new friend Miss Sylvia, but I had by no means forgotten her. Without wishing to exaggerate my feelings, I may say that I had taken a strong liking to that very engaging young lady. She was a pleasant, easy-mannered girl, evidently good-tempered and very frank and simple, a girl, as Mrs. Sparkler would have said, with no bigot nonsense about her. Her tastes ran along very similar lines to my own, and she was clever enough to be a quite interesting companion. Then it was evident that she liked me, which was in itself an attraction, to say nothing of the credit that it reflected on her taste, and, in a perfectly modest way, she had made no secret of the fact. And, finally, she was exceptionally good-looking. Now, people may say, as they do, that beauty is only skin-deep, which is perfectly untrue, by the way, but even so one is more concerned with the skins of one's fellow-creatures than with their livers or vermiform appendices. The contact of persons and of things occurs at their respective services. From which it will be gathered that I was only allowing a decent interval to elapse before repeating my visit to the Hawthorns. Indeed, I was beginning to think that a sufficient interval had already passed and to contemplate seriously my second call, when my intentions were forestalled by Sylvia herself. Returning home one Friday evening, I found on my mantelpiece a short letter from her, enclosing a ticket for an exhibition of paintings and sculpture at a gallery in Leicester Square, and mentioning, incidentally, that she proposed to visit the show on the following morning in order to see the works by a good light, which seemed such an eminently rational proceeding in these short winter days that I determined instantly to follow her example and get the advantage of the morning light myself. I acted on this decision with such thoroughness that, when I arrived at the gallery, I found the attendant in the act of opening the doors, and for nearly half an hour I was in sole possession of the premises. Then, by twos and threes, other visitors began to straggle in, and among them Sylvia, looking very fresh and dainty, and obviously pleased to see me. "'I'm glad you were able to come,' she said, as we shook hands. "'I thought you would, somehow.' It is so much nicer to have someone to talk over the pictures with, isn't it? Much more interesting, I agreed. I've been taking a preliminary look around, and have already accumulated quite a lot of profound observations to discharge at you as occasion offers. Shall we begin at number one? We began at number one, and worked our way methodically, picture by picture, round the room, considering each work attentively, with earnest discussion, and a wealth of comment. As the morning wore on, visitors arrived in increasing numbers, until the two large rooms began to be somewhat inconveniently crowded. We had made a complete circuit of the pictures, and were about to turn to the sculpture, which occupied the central floor space, when Sylvia touched me on the arm. "'Let us sit down for a minute,' said she. "'I want to speak to you.' 
I led her to one of the large settees that disputed the floor space with the busts and statuettes, and, somewhat mystified by her serious tone and by the rather agitated manner which I now noticed for the first time, seated myself by her side. "'What is it?' I asked. She looked anxiously round the room, and, leaning towards me, said in a low tone, "'Have you noticed a man who has been keeping near us and listening to our conversation?' "'No, I haven't.' I replied. If I had, I would have given him a hint to keep farther off. But there's nothing in it, you know. In picture galleries, it is very usual for people to hang about and try to overhear criticisms. This man may be interested in the exhibits. Yes, I know. But I don't think this person was so much interested in the exhibits. He didn't look at the pictures. He looked at us. I caught his eye several times reflected in the picture glasses, and once or twice I saw him looking most attentively at this crucifix of mine. That was what really disturbed me. I wish now that I hadn't unbuttoned my coat. So do I. You'll have to leave that crucifix at home if it attracts so much undesirable attention. Which is the man? Is he in this room? No, I don't see him now. I expect he has gone into the next room. Then let us go there too, and if you'll point him out to me, I will pay him back in his own coin." We rose and made our way to the door of communication, and, as we passed into the second room, Sylvia grasped my arm nervously. "'There he is. Don't let him see us looking at him. He is sitting on the settee at the farther end of the room.' It was impossible to make a mistake, since the settee held only a single person, a fairly well-dressed, ordinary-looking man, rather swarthy and foreign in appearance, with a small waxed moustache. He was sitting nearly opposite the entrance door, and seemed at the moment to be reading over the catalogue, which he held open on his knee. But as he looked up almost at the moment when we entered, I turned my back to him, and continued my inspection with the aid of the reflection in a picture-glass. "'He's probably a journalist,' I said. "'You see, he's scribbling some notes on the blank leaves of his catalogue. Probably some of your profound criticisms, which will appear.' perhaps tomorrow morning, clothed in super-technical jargon, in a daily paper. Here I paused suddenly, for I had made a rather curious observation. The reflection in a mirror is, as everybody knows, reversed laterally, so that the right hand of a person appears to be the left, and vice versa. But in the present case, no reversal seemed to have taken place. The figure in the reflection was writing with its right hand. Obviously, then, the real person was writing with his left. This put a rather different aspect on the affair. Up to the present I had been disposed to think that Sylvia had been unduly disturbed, for there are plenty of ill-bred bounders to be met in any public place who will stare a good-looking girl out of countenance. But now my suspicions were all awake. It is true that left-handed men are as common as blackberries, but still— "'Can you tell me, Miss Vine?' I asked, as we worked our way towards the other end of the room, if this man is at all like the one who frightened you so in Millfield Lane. No, he's not. I'm sure of that. The man in the lane was a good deal taller and thinner. Well, said I, whoever he is, I want to have a good look at him, and the best plan will be to turn our attention to the sculpture. Shall we go and look at that rather remarkable pink bust? That will give our friend a chance of another stare at you and, if he doesn't take it, I will go and inspect him where he sits. 
the bust to which i had referred was executed in a curious rose-tinted marble very crystalline and translucent a material that suited the soft girlish features of its subject admirably it stood on an isolated pedestal quite near the settee on which the suspicious stranger was sitting and i hoped that our presence might lure him from his retreat i don't think i said taking up a position with my back to the settee that i have ever seen any marble quite like this have you no replied sylvia it looks like coarse lump sugar stained pink and how very transparent it is too transparent for most subjects here she gave a quick nervous glance at me and i was aware of a shadow thrown by some person standing behind me had our friend risen to the bait already i continued the conversation in good audible tones very awkward these isolated pedestals would be for slovenly artists who scamped the back of their work with this remark i moved round the pedestal as if to examine the back of the bust and sylvia followed the move brought us opposite the person who had been standing behind me and sure enough it was the gentleman from the settee i continued to talk rather blatantly i fear commenting on the careful treatment of the hair and the backs of the ears and meanwhile took an occasional swift glance at the man opposite he appeared to be gazing in rapt admiration at the bust but his glance too occasionally wandered and when it did the point of fixation as the oculists would express it was sylvia's crucifix which was still uncovered presently i ventured to take a good steady look at him and was for a few moments unobserved his left eye moved as i could see quite smoothly and evenly from point to point but the right at each change of position gave a little rapid vertical oscillation suddenly he became aware of my now undisguised inspection of him and immediately the oscillation became much more marked as is often the case with these spasmodic movements perhaps he was conscious of the fact at any rate he turned his head away and then moved off to examine a statuette that stood near the middle of the room i looked after him wondering what i ought to do that he was the man whom i had seen on the two previous occasions i had not the slightest doubt although i was still unable to identify his features or anything about him excepting the nystagmus and the left-handed condition but there could be no question that he was the same man and this very variability in his appearance only gave a more sinister significance to the affair pointing clearly as it did to careful and efficient disguise evidently he had been and still was shadowing me and what was still worse he seemed to be taking a most undesirable interest in sylvia and yet what could i do my small knowledge of the law suggested that shadowing was not a criminal act unless some unlawful intent could be proved as to punching the fellow's head which was what i felt most inclined to do that would merely give rise to disagreeable and perhaps dangerous publicity my lord is pleased to meditate sylvia remarked at length breaking in upon my brown study i beg your pardon i exclaimed the fact is i was wondering what we'd better do next do you want to see anything else i should rather like to see the outside of the building she answered that man has made me quite nervous. Then we will go at once, and we won't sign the visitor's book. I led her to the door, and as we rapidly descended the carpeted stairs, I considered once more what it were best to do. Had I been alone, I would have kept our watcher in view, and done a little shadowing on my own account, 
but Sylvia's presence made me uneasy. It was of the first importance that this sinister stranger should not learn where she lived. The only reasonable course seemed to be to give him the slip, if possible. "'What did you make of that man?' Sylvia asked when we were outside in the square. "'Don't you think he was watching us?' "'Yes, I do, and I may say that I've seen him before.' She turned a terrified face to me, and asked, "'You don't think he is the wretch who pushed you into the river?' Now, this was exactly what I did think, but it was not worth while to say so. Accordingly, I temporized. It is impossible to say. I never saw that man, you know. But I have reason for thinking that this fellow is keeping a watch on me, and it occurs to me that, if he appears still to be following us, I had better put you into a hansom and keep my eye on him until you are out of sight. Oh, I'm not going to agree to that she replied with great decision. I don't suppose that my presence is much protection to you, but still, you are safer while we are together, and I'm not going to leave you. This settled the matter. Of course she was quite right. I was much safer while she was with me, and if she refused to go off alone, we must make our escape together. I looked up the square as we turned out of it towards the Charing Cross Road, but could see no sign of our follower, and, as we walked on at a good pace, I hoped that we might get clear away. But I was not going to take any chances. Before turning homewards, I decided to walk sharply some distance in an easterly direction, and then see if there was any sign of pursuit. For my previous experiences of this good gentleman led me to suspect that he was by no means without skill and experience in the shadowing art. We walked down to Charing Cross, and turned eastward along the north side of the Strand, I had chosen this thoroughfare as offering a good cover to a pursuer, who could easily keep out of sight among the crowd of wayfarers who thronged the pavement, for the first question to be settled was whether we were or were not being shadowed. "'Where are we going now?' Sylvia asked. "'We are going up Bedford Street,' I answered. "'There is a bookshop on the right-hand side where we can loiter unobtrusively and keep a lookout. If we see nobody, We'll try one of the courts off Maiden Lane, where we should be certain to catch anyone who is following. But we will try the bookstall first, because, if our friend is in attendance, I have a rather neat plan for getting rid of him. We accordingly made our way to the bookstall in Bedford Street, and began systematically to look through the second-hand volumes, and as we pored over an open book, we were able to keep an effective watch on the end of the street and the strand beyond. Our vigil was not a long one. We had been at the stall less than a minute, when Sylvia whispered to me, "'Do you see that man looking in the shop on the farther side of the Strand?' "'Yes,' I replied. "'I've noticed him. He has only just arrived, and I fancy he is our man. If he is, he will probably go into the doorway, so as not to have to keep his back to us.' Almost as I spoke, the man moved into the deep doorway as if to inspect the end of the shop window, and Sylvia exclaimed, "'I'm sure that is the man. I can see his profile now.' There could be no doubt of the man's identity, and at this moment, as if to clinch the matter, he took out a cigarette and lighted it, striking the match with his left hand. "'Come along,' said I. "'We will now try my little plan for getting rid of him. We mustn't seem to hurry.' We sauntered up to the corner of Maiden Lane, and there stood for a few moments looking about us. Then we strolled across to the farther side of Chandler Street, and, as soon as we were out of sight of our follower, crossed the road, and slipped in at the entrance to the civil service stores. 
passing quickly through the provision department, we halted at the glazed doors, from which we could look out through the Bedford Street entrance. "'There he is!' exclaimed Sylvia. And there he was, sure enough, walking rather quickly up the east side of Bedford Street. "'Now,' said I, "'let us make a bolt for it. This way.' We darted out through the china, furniture, and ironmongery departments, across the whole width of the building and out of the Agger Street entrance, where we immediately crossed into King William Street, turned down Adelaide Street, shot through the alley by St. Martin's Church, and came out opposite the Natural Portrait Gallery, just as a yellow omnibus was about to start. We sprang into the moving vehicle, and, as it rumbled away into the Charing Cross Road, we kept a sharp watch on the end of King William Street. But there was no sign of our pursuer. We had got rid of him for the present, at any rate. "'Don't you think,' said Sylvia, "'that he will suspect that we went into the stores?' "'I have no doubt he will, and that is where we have him. He can't come away and leave the building unsearched. Most probably he is, at this very moment, racing madly up and down the stairs, and trying to watch the three entrances at the same time.' Sylvia chuckled gleefully. "'It has been quite good fun.' she said. But I'm glad we have shaken him off. I think I shall stay indoors for a day or two and paint, and I hope you'll stay indoors too. And that reminds me that I'm out of Hale's White. I must call in at Robinson's and get a pound tube. Do you mind? It won't delay us more than a few minutes. Now, I would much rather have gone straight on to Hampstead, for our unknown attendant certainly knew the whereabouts of my lodgings, and might follow us when he failed to find us in the stores, Moreover, I had, of late, given the neighbourhood of the artist's colourman's shop a rather wide berth, having seen Mrs. Samway from afar once or twice, thereabouts, and having surmised that she tended to haunt that particular part of the Hampstead Road. But the fresh supply of flake-white seemed to be a necessity, so I made no objection, and we accordingly alighted opposite the shop and entered. Nevertheless, while Sylvia was making her purchase, I stood near the glass door and kept a watchful eye on the street. When a tram stopped a short distance away, I glanced quickly over its passengers, as well as I could, though without observing anyone who might have been our absent friend. But just as it was about to move on, I saw a woman run out from the pavement and enter, and though I got but an indifferent view of her, I felt an uncomfortable suspicion that the woman was Mrs. Samway. Looking back, I do not quite understand why I had avoided this woman, or why I now looked with distaste on the fact that she was travelling in our direction. She was a pleasant-spoken, intelligent person, and I had no dislike of her, nor any cause for dislike. Perhaps it was the recollection of the offence that she had given Sylvia in this very shop but a short time since that made me unwilling to encounter her now in Sylvia's company. At any rate, whatever the cause may have been, throughout the otherwise pleasant journey, and in spite of an animated and interesting conversation, the thought of Mrs. Samway continually recurred, and this notwithstanding that I kept a constant unobtrusive lookout for the mysterious spy who might even now be hovering in our rear. We alighted from the tram at the Duke of St. Albans, and made our way to North End by way of the Highgate Ponds. As we crossed the open fields and the heath, I turned at intervals to see if there was any sign of our being followed but no suspicious-looking person appeared in sight, though on two separate occasions I noticed a woman ahead of us, and walking in much the same direction, turn round and look our way. There was no reason, however, to suppose that she was looking at us, 
and in any case she was too far ahead to be recognizable. At last, somewhere in the neighborhood of the Spaniards' Road, she finally disappeared, possibly into the hollow beyond, and I saw no more of her. At the gate of the Hawthorns I delivered up the heavy tube of paint, and thus, as it were, formally brought our little outing to an end, and as we shook hands, Sylvia treated me to a parting exhortation. "'Now do take care of yourself and keep out of harm's way,' she urged. "'You are so large, you see,' she added with a smile, "'and such a very conspicuous object that you ought to take special precautions. And you must come and see us again quite soon. I assure you my aunt is positively pining for another conversation with you.' Why shouldn't you drop in to-morrow and have tea with us? Now, this very idea had already occurred to me, so I hastened to close with the invitation, and then, as she retired up the path with another good-bye and a wave of the hand, I turned away and walked back towards the heath. For some minutes I strode on, across furzy hollows or over little hills, traversed by sunken sandy paths occupying myself with thoughts of the pleasant, friendly girl whom I had just left, and reflections on the strange events of the morning. Presently I mounted a larger hill, on which was perched a little old-fashioned house. Skirting the wooden fence that enclosed it, I turned the corner and saw before me, at a distance of some forty yards, a rough, rustic seat. On that seat a woman was sitting, and somehow, when I looked at her and noted the graceful droop of the figure, it was without any feeling of surprise, almost that of realized expectation, that I recognized Mrs. Samway. End of chapter 13